Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. I spoke to hedge fund telemetry founder and president Thomas Thornton. Tom's career has taken him from early stints at Morgan Stanley and Roxbury Capital to the now notorious former hedge fund Level Global. Having subsequently been appointed head trader at a high-profile family office, Tom started to run his own money before a eureka moment in 2017. What if Tom could bring investors inside the hedge fund world, offering them a unique glimpse of the insights available to these enigmatic institutions? Tom and the team take this one step further too, aiming to empower their readers with a true investing edge through a unique combination of sentiment and technical analysis. Tom describes his story career to date, and based on telemetry sentiment analysis, identifies the market trends to watch right now. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, Tom. Uh, so how's your week been so far? Have markets kept you busy? The markets have been exceptionally busy, I think all year and then last year. So every week has some new element that uh, surprises me. Uh, this week was the US CPI coming in very, very hot, showing a very high inflation number, and the bond market didn't take notice of it. And that's rather strange. So it's been a, it's been a wild week. I'm happy uh, to finally hit the weekend. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, it has been a while, but you can actually, I think we'll get into some of that inflation data uh, later on. Uh, but first, let's start with an introductory question. So we always open a question that doesn't necessarily flow chronologically, uh, but it gets into some of the meat of what we'll talk about later on in the interview and hopefully engages some of the listeners. How can a focus on sentiment analysis give people an investing edge, do you think? I think the market has been driven a lot by sentiment over the last year. And sentiment is about confidence and how confident people are uh, when they're buying things. And, you know, look at an asset like Bitcoin. Bitcoin is really just a sentiment-driven asset that uh, the more people that uh, are buying it and it's going up, the more confident people get and it brings more people in. And it works on the exact opposite on the downside. And now you've seen Bitcoin get basically cut in half. And it, you're losing sentiment now. Um, I look at a lot of different sentiment indicators. And at my previous firm, I was in charge of looking at all the market sentiment polls. At, and those go from the Daily Sentiment Index to then Davis Research, Investors Intelligence. And I actually got to know a lot of the people that built these market sentiment mm-hmm. indicators and polls. So I really could understand which ones work best at which times. And I track on my company's site, uh, the Daily Sentiment Index from a guy named Jake Bernstein, who uh, started this uh, polling service back in 1987. And he asked individual traders every day, are you bullish or bearish? And it was just basically, are you bullish or bearish? And he would come up with a percentage. And to put it into some perspective, Uh, Looking at January of 2020, 
market sentiment for the S&P 500 was about 80%. Uh, it, it went up to about 90% uh, briefly, but when it's above 80%, uh, it, is a, it is an overbought extreme level. Now, market sentiment can stay high for a period of time, and it can also stay low for a period of time. It's what you need as a trigger uh, to turn things. So I use other technical indicators for that. As it turned out, uh, with uh, the lows in March of 2020, that market sentiment, which was 80% or a little higher, uh, went to 4% bulls. And whenever I see some sort of you know, capitulation or extreme low in market sentiment, I just turn bullish mm-hmm. immediately. And I know that looking at this data for many years, that it doesn't stay at these levels. Low levels um, usually don't stay. They typically bounce, uh, especially with equity indices. So it was a pretty low risk uh, buying opportunity when everybody was really freaking out. They, they were very nervous. Stocks were dropping you know, 10% a day, uh, huge swings in the market. But it gave me confidence that over the next couple of months, the market would find some stability and would rise higher. And I've done this numerous times and you can see it where it, it, it happens at these past peaks. And, and one of the things about market sentiment, the average investor can basically see in front of them market sentiment. If you look at newspapers or if, if the television news is covering a story on something in the market, if they're talking about the markets are getting killed like March of 2020, uh, that's a good sign if the general public is starting to take notice of a deep, you know, disastrous sentiment backdrop. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I don't know if it happened in the UK or in Europe, but we had this meme stock game GameStop phenomena back in January, and the stock was going up, up and up and up. And I would be getting calls from people that don't normally look at the stock market, mm-hmm. and they would ask me opinions. I even had my daughter, who's 21 in college, a film student, say, Dad, what's going on with this GameStop? And also the nightly news in uh, the U.S. and in uh, the local news here in New York and Connecticut area, they were picking up the GameStop uh, piece as well. And that was exactly at the high. So sometimes you see it when you see something on a business television uh, after a big move. And they're picking up and talking about the story. That's probably you're good towards the end of the move, um, and either on either side. So I look at that and I study it, um, you know, really uh, meticulously, and I combine it with other indicators that I've used, and it, it seems to work. Yeah, no, certainly. Um, and we'll get into kind of how you identify and analyze that market sentiment in a bit. I just want to pick up on your point uh, around kind of GameStop and me stocks it was a question that I was going to ask actually later on but I think I think let's tackle it now um I guess though that kind of activity that market activity is a result of increased retail market participation you're getting a lot more retail investors and traders in the market now than you had done historically I just it, it kind of struck me that that might mean because of their lack of experience and skill and expertise perhaps that it could make market settlement a little bit harder to analyze perhaps or conversely, does the simply the increased volume of data available to you actually make market sentiment a little bit easier to ascertain? I, I think it's a lot easier. Um, 
when you see the public uh, become, uh, you know, entranced with this mania of stocks going up and everything, it was so easy for people to make money and people making money that really had never made money before and, and people starting to invest in the stock market for the first time. Uh, I love seeing people get into the you know, investing world and starting to invest, but this wasn't investing. This was gambling and people were using margin and a lot of people made money and a lot of people probably lost a lot of money. And it's been this gambler's mentality. And I think that even with the crypto assets, uh, we've seen a, a gambler's mentality and you've seen this, I, I've called it the nomads uh, that shift their money from one hot asset to another. And when they lose faith or they start losing money and they become boring again and they shift lower, um, that's, you know, that's also a good sign. Now, one thing about um, with, with Robinhood and investors in this last year, uh, there was a study that showed that the amount of inflows into the U.S. market in the first half of 2021 was higher, notably higher than the previous 10 years combined. And usually, uh, and you can look back in history and you can say, well, you know, 1999, 2000, you had this similar occurrence of investors putting their money into the equity markets. And typically that's a, a late cycle um, event. So my worry now um, if we can just talk a little about that, is that we have a market that has gone straight up. And even in Europe and other markets, uh, it's been a very, very strong uh, last uh, 18 months, or you know, about 12 months. Uh, it's been exceptionally strong. That average of the first half of the year, if that starts to, let's say, we move lower, we move 10% lower, 20% lower, those people that put money in are going to start to feel the pain and nothing will motivate sellers more than lower prices or the fear of losing money. So sellers typically sell lower, um, even on every institutional desk I ever worked on, I'd always have a trader that would say, oh, I, I, my seller is, you know, he's, he's staying higher. And I'd say, I'm just waiting for him to come down because I'm going to wait and buy it, buy it lower. And usually they'd do it. Even an intraday, they would do it. So it's, um, this is going to be an interesting second half of the year. Yeah, it certainly is. Okay, well, let's, let's move to your background now, just to give the rest of the interview, I guess, a bit of context to introduce you to our listeners, I suppose. Um, so from around about 2011, you worked for a hedge fund called Level Global Investors. So this was a, a very high profile firm uh, based in the US, managing up to $4.2 billion AUM at its peak, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, before it notably closed due to uh, an FBI investigation into insider trading. So that was part of a wider government crackdown. So I was keen to kind of get your insight uh, into how that invest investigation sort of unraveled and, and how you kind of look back on that whole experience. I wonder if you had a few anecdotes to share with the listeners. Well, Level Global um, was based in Connecticut and we had also an office in New York City. We were long short uh, equity fund, uh, multi-sector uh, fund. Uh, it was a great firm. I started uh, basically at the beginning of the, the firm in, in 2002. Uh, I was um, a trader 
one of the senior traders on the desk. I traded um, technology stocks, uh, internet, media, and I also traded uh, S&P futures and hedging strategies. But I also did weekend uh, notes on technical analysis, and I would evaluate everything that we were trading or looking at in our market and determine uh, risk reward on, on things. So uh, Level Global uh, was uh, founded by David Gannick and Anthony Chason. Uh, they uh, left SAC Capital, uh, Steve Cohen's firm, and David was the number one asset that Steve had, you know, except for Steve. And they had a very high profile launch. Um, we could have raised as much money as we wanted. I think we launched with 500 million, which was a, a great start. Uh, David uh, and Anthony were uh, different types of sort of like the yin and yang. Uh, David was a very uh, outgoing, um, abrasive, uh, huge risk taker um, and wouldn't flinch. I mean, he would say, sell, you know, sell a million S&P 500, you know, spiders without, you know, he'd be sipping his tea or having popcorn after hours and I'd have to do it. He had no problem <laughs> taking big risk, but he also was a great risk manager. Anthony was a phenomenal analyst and a technology analyst. And he, he was amazing because he would be able to read or hear or see a earnings report. And within 15 seconds, he would be able to determine uh, whether that was going to move up or down or what would move a stock. And he, he was an, a, just a, a computer uh, when it came to that. Now, we had a really great um, history. We, uh, we were you know, very high profile on the street. And we, um, one thing I will say is we had uh, every single year uh, except 2008, a, a positive year. The 2008, we were down one percent, uh, which I, I I was kind of mad because everybody was you know shutting down in December of 2008. I'm like, come on, let's get this thing positive. But it's it was such a difficult time. But we really, I mean, down one percent was a home run, and um, so we were really pleased with that. But I you know I, I just wanted to say that we always had a positive record. Um, in late 2010. Everything changed, um, and it started on a Friday. And late after uh, after hours, uh, the Wall Street Journal had this scoop that the um, FBI was looking at this inside or uh, expert network um, uh, ring that was going around. And expert networks were basically um, these were like GLG would have one where they would connect analysts or portfolio managers with an expert in an industry. So it could be an expert in the semiconductor industry, or it could be an expert at a particular firm. And they would do these calls. Um, and you know that was generally what not just hedge funds, but other um, mutual funds and other pension funds would, would do these um, as well. But in, I think it was November 22nd, and that was the Monday. And I remember this well. I was going into the city, to New York City, and I was running late. Uh, my BlackBerry broke. 
which I had an iPhone and a BlackBerry at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I was going to have my IT guy uh, fix my BlackBerry. So that was like on my mind. But I had my, um, my Starbucks cup just like this. I'm walking into our building and I get in our elevator um, and next in are two FBI agents wearing their FBI jackets and they pushed the button uh, for my floor and they said, what floor? And I said, that one. So they just kind of looked at me and I was like, going up this elevator, I knew everything in my life was going to change. And it was an absolute um, disastrous time because what, um, what happened is we went up and we were like going to everybody in our firm is in our um, conference room. It was a glass uh, conference room. Uh, we had beautiful offices. We had my uh, senior partner had incredible art. Um, and so we were sitting in there and everybody was quiet. And I just knew that everything was going to change for everybody in that room that day. Now, they said everybody that we, I was a partner in the firm, but I wasn't a senior partner. And they said anybody who is everybody that's not a senior partner can leave. So I had never been out of my office uh, at nine o'clock in the morning ever. And I went over to a friend's office um, in New York City because we didn't know what we're going to, what are we going to do now? We were all just looking at each other like this was such a, you know, a, a mess and uncertainty. So I go to my friend's office and I said, okay, mm. I call him up and he, he's like, what are you, where are you? What are you doing? I said, I'm downstairs. Let me up. He said, what happened? I'll tell you. So I come up, I tell him the story. He's like, holy shit, this is just incredible. What happened then is Steve Cullen called my friend and said, and he had him on speakerphone. And he said, I heard David Gannick's firm was raided. And my friend said, I haven't heard anything. I'll let you know what I know. And I'm hearing this going, oh my God, this is just incredible. So I go, I leave um, and I head back to Greenwich where I live. And we had an office there. And since my BlackBerry wasn't working, I didn't have access to email of what was happening. Or if there was any uh, statements from our firm or whatever. So I get into, um, I call my wife and I said, meet me at the office. Um, she goes, meets me. And our office was based in Greenwich. So we were there. I was the only one there. It was a satellite office at that time. And we had all these press people start to show up. And I was like, I don't want to be Googled as, you know, level global. And there's my face. Uh, so my wife left and she went out a back door. And I thought to myself, you know, what's the best way to just get around this? Is I, I said, I'm just going to go straight right through them. And they said, oh, do you work for Level Global? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, no, they don't, they don't even live here or they're not here anymore. They, they, they are in New York. So they just, you know, packed it up and left and I went home. But as it turned out, um, at the end of the story, uh, one of our partners was uh, tried. He was found guilty. And then uh, it was, mm-hmm. he was exonerated. Um, and a higher court. Uh, the first court had a dog walker, um, people that, you know, just the, the average person who doesn't understand securities law. Now, the crazy thing about this is like, he was exonerated. We don't get our, our reputation back, but the, uh, the FBI had no basis for coming in to our firm. Mm-hmm. They, they did not have any particular uh, thing that, or trade that they could contest. They just came in 
They said, give us all your stuff. They combined it with other firms and said, oh, you did this Dell trade. Um, now, what happened is I put on a Dell short trade in, I think it was summer of 2008. Now, Intel had just announced poor earnings and my head of research, Anthony Chason, said, what other tech stocks look vulnerable to you? And I was a technician. I said, look, I think Dell's going to go down. And so we shorted $400 million worth of Dell. Uh, it went against us for a little bit. And then we added more and boom, it went down. Now, I didn't know this, but we did have a um, semiconductor analyst who was chatting on his Yahoo email with one of his other partner or friends from a previous firm who worked at another firm and they were getting information. And, and basically it was information that was about 10 degrees of 10 people that um, it wasn't like direct information. And, and actually the direct information, the person who got it at another firm who we had no idea who it was, was getting it from the Dell um, investor relations person saying, I think your margin assumptions are a little mm. high. So that's where it all started. And that's why Anthony was exonerated because it was just, it was not a true insider trading um, case. We did not pay anybody off for this research, but it ruined our reputation and we had to mm. reinvent. And I left and I couldn't get a job. Uh, I had a great reputation. I had a lot of really, you know, very smart uh, hedge funds that uh, people that I really respected. They interviewed me and their legal people said, you know what, we can't have um, Tom Thornton's name show up in the press uh, and be part of our firm. And so I understood that I was tainted and it was, it was devastating. Uh, I ended up going back to work for David at his family office and we traded stocks and basically we're, we're doing what we were doing before. And while I was there, I would be putting out research like I did uh, at Level Global. And I came up with this idea of hedge fund telemetry and I didn't do anything with it for a while, but I, I looked at it this way. I had all of this research and data that I would absorb every morning, very, very early in the morning. And I would take what information was vital and important to our firm. And then I would broadcast it back out to our internal firm emails. And that would help us with risk reward. So we can talk about that later. I, that, but that's my, my background of and what a, what a story that was. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was a fascinating story and one that I was really keen not to interrupt. Um, it's just such an interesting insight for people that are kind of external to, to the industry, to the hedge fund industry, people that have never worked in that to understand kind of how an in investigation like that actually goes down. Um, so really fascinating. And I think it's a really important point about reputation, not personal reputations, but just to businesses. I mean, there were big hedge funds um, Level Global not being the only one that were targeted and, and shuttered as a result of that government probe. Um, and I just wanted to get your take before we move on, on kind of the hedge fund industry's sort of reputation as a whole, because it's exactly, I guess, investigations like that, that do mar and taint the industry's reputation and people's sort of thinking of it external to it. Uh, but where, where do you think the industry is now? Where do you, how do you think the public perceive well, the hedge fund industry? I think industry? the public... Thinks of hedge funds as villains and people that 
um, steal good people's money and they short stocks and jam prices lower. And I think the average you know person in the public thinks that uh, they're, they're villains. They don't realize that hedge funds actually uh, you know have a important role to play in the capital markets. Um, I mean, let, let's just say that when our firm, we had um, a lot of pension money. We had a lot of uh, college endowments. We had large um, you know, private companies that would uh, give us money. Public companies gave us money uh, to manage. And we managed risk and hedged risk and you know, performed well what we needed to do, and w- which is what we were supposed to do. Uh, but I, I think that the hedge fund industry is is tainted. It never. I, I don't think it'll ever be a looked upon as a you know a, a good business. Um, I think if you look at how politicians look at hedge funds, um, you know we're, we're tainted as villains. But we actually serve a very important purpose: uh, price discovery. Uh, we also mm-hmm. look for uh, companies that are. Uh, a lot of them look for companies that are fraudulent and expose the fraud uh, in companies. And um, I think that's important. Um, perhaps today, the um, problems with the industry are like a lot of other things in business. It's not an easy business to start. And after um, the events in 2011, I believe the um, barriers to entry in the hedge fund world uh, became a, a lot uh, more difficult because there was an added layer of compliance that was needed. There was an added layer of um, transparency that was needed. Uh, the days of launching a hedge fund with a, a few people um, was over because it, you needed to have scale and you needed assets to to manage. And it became harder because the average allocator that would give money mm-hmm. to uh, hedge funds would want um, it used to be um, you know one year track record see you know see how they run the business but it became harder and it was two three years out before any new hedge fund would be able to uh, get assets from an allocator so raising money's been incredibly hard for hedge funds if you if you have a stellar track record, you're spinning out of a large hedge fund. Uh, the hedge fund uh, principal is giving you money. Uh, you're going to have an easier time at launching a hedge fund with a significant amount of money. The other thing that um, is plaguing the industry are the fee compression. It used to be that the standard model was two and 20. So you would get 2% of um, assets managed and you would get 20% on top of, of the performance mm. that, that you had for the year. That's gone down. Uh, I've seen it lower than 1% um, on assets managed. I've seen it where they don't charge anything on assets managed. I've seen the performance fee go down to 10%. Um, and so when you have that type of fee compression, uh, the business becomes a lot harder to sustain with more expenses. And it really is just a, is a very uh, difficult business uh, to maintain. And on top of it, you, you can look at it and you can say, well, hedge fund is really unnecessary because you could have just put your money into the S&P 500 and you would outperform 
all the hedge funds out there. And that was, you know, a difficult thing as well. So it, you really, you haven't had uh, significant amounts of volatility to really see um, the, the stock pickers or the credit funds stand out. So it's been a very difficult time for hedge funds, but I don't think the industry is dead. I believe that there will be a, a resurgence um, in stock pickers and in people that actually uh, hedge. Um, you know, the, there's a lot of hedge funds out there that their hedges that they're going to have 20% in cash, and the rest is long. Uh, but we were a hedge fund. We we did run net short a lot of times, and we still made money uh, year after year. But the fact is that um, the business has changed, um, and it will change. Um, going forward it's just it's it's a harder business than it was 10 years ago yeah absolutely i think the long-term sort of vi- viability of these businesses is something actually we could probably have a whole another podcast episode on i think there's a really interesting discussion but i, I, I do want to get on to hedge fund telemetry and kind of to discuss your sort of approach and things like that but actually i will just pick up on one point you, you talked about um how hedge funds sometimes serve sort of a market function of identifying fraudulent businesses, which I think I think I think is a really interesting point, and is something we discussed with um, a short seller, a runner of a hedge fund called uh, Farmy Kadir, based in New York, I believe. Um, we uh, interviewed her for the Opto Sessions podcast. Uh, must have been sort of six months ago now, um, and she was uh, involved in a high-profile cases and actually the identification of companies like Valiant Pharmaceuticals and more recently Wirecard as well. We actually spoke to her about the former uh, during the episode. So I'll just uh, quickly take the opportunity to point listeners to, to that episode. Uh, it's, it's, it's a really interesting conversation. Um, but now let's, let's get to the focus of today's episode, which of course is your current firm, Hedge Fund Telemetry. So first of all, in two, I think you. I think you started the business in 2017. So correct me if I'm wrong. But what inspired you to start that business? Was there one eureka moment you can pinpoint? Well, as I said earlier, I was working for um, the founder of my old firm's uh, family office, and as it turned out, I had conversations with another one of our um, traders, and we were talking about this whole idea of getting research from all these different places and then, you know, condensing it to what really is important that will help manage risk. And I, in, I think this was in 2013, I, um, I signed up, uh, I got the domain for hedgefundtelemetry.com. And I thought about putting out research to uh, large um, institutions and large uh, hedge funds. And I knew a bunch of hedge fund managers that I thought I could, uh, possibly uh, offer this to. I didn't do anything about it though. I was too busy with the family office. And at the time I was also helping a a friend raise money for some Chinese private equity assets. And uh, so I I didn't do anything until uh, 2017. And it was really just because I was uh, was playing around, putting out stuff for some of these big hedge fund People, it's about 25 people that um, and, and funds that, that received my notes. And that same uh, trader hit me up and he said, Tom, you really should do something more with this because you're not making any money, enough money to really scale this. And I put it out on Twitter and I said, Hey, if anybody, mm. you know, would be, I think I had like 
2,000 followers. I said, if anybody would like my daily notes, um, you know, send me a direct message and I'll, I'll send it to you. I had 500 people that day send me direct messages with their email. And that was really the eureka moment. Wow. And I, I called a friend of mine who was a website developer. And I said, look, how do I get all these emails onto you know, a list? And what do I do? So we signed up, we, we set up this, you know, landing page and I was sending out my, my notes and, and I, I ended up getting, you know, thousands of people that um, started reading it for free. And then we turned it into um, a paywall, uh, which I think that was later in 2017. And I, I got a lot of uh, publicity uh, from being, you know, appearing on Real Vision. Uh, Raul and uh, Grant Williams, uh, they're, they're friends of mine. And, and so they're like, let's do some interviews. And I, I, I actually, it was kind of funny because I, I ended up um, one, my first interview I ever did, I'd never been on camera before. It was uh, with uh, a short seller, um, Tesla short seller. Um, and I had to a- ask questions and I had no idea that I was the one going to be on camera. But I did it. They liked it. So they said, okay, let's keep you going here. <laughs> but as it turned out, hedge fund telemetry uh, really has been uh, wonderful. It's been uh, life-changing for me because I've been able to find so many different varieties of people. I have some really, really smart uh, large hedge funds, uh, mutual fund managers, pension managers. I have a ton of retail investors that want to get a little taste of what a hedge fund will see. And I'm not, I'm not short or I'm not, um, I don't hesitate to short stocks. I'm, if I see the market is as risky as I see it now, I'll, I'll short stocks. And, you know, one thing that um, is important, telemetry. And people are saying, well, what is telemetry? And I'm, I'm a big Formula One fan. And uh, this weekend is the British Grand Prix. I wish I could be there. Um, I, mm. I'm, I've been a huge fan for many, many years. And back in the early 90s, Formula One teams would start putting computer monitors and little chips and things on different parts of a car. And every time they would go around the track, that data would be wirelessly transferred to the pits. And then they would crunch data. And then it would, it would, it would say, you know, adjust your brake balance, um, conserve fuel, speed up, whatever. And today, that data, there's millions and millions of terabytes of data per race that a team will get wirelessly. And it also goes, for if they're in, you know, the, the races in Austin, Texas, uh, all that data will go to the Mercedes factory, the Red Bull factory uh, in the UK, and it's immediately transferred back to the driver. So I looked at it like I came in very early every morning, I got a lot of information I broke it down what was most important, how to position uh, for risk, how to uh, essentially like they would set up a car, I would set up a portfolio and uh, for the optimal uh, results. So I have this business. um, It's been really fun uh, to do. I've I've met so many nice people. Um, it's, It's growing and we are evolving um right now we're starting to bring in 
some fundamental analysts that will be um, adding their like a weekly note of first of all we have one for energy right now we have some techno technology and financials a consumer they're all on tap we're rebuilding our website which is i i never could imagine just all trying to get all the data on there working properly what a what a hassle it is but uh it's going to be great i'm really pleased about it and it's it's another evolution because what we did mm -hmm. at level global is we'd have sector analysts put out a weekly note every sunday uh, for the portfolio managers that would say these are the catalysts that are going to happen this week in my sector uh, these are the stocks i like long short and the way i look at it is we're just very prepared for whatever um, type of event happened um if the stock that we like went down uh, and it, it hit our skew level the downside perfect we're going to buy it there uh, if another one, something else happened we'd be able to adjust appropriately knowing the plan so it's um it's an exciting time you know one, one thing i just was you know you're talking about the short sellers um, and i i really have a lot of respect for some of the short sellers that get super granular into an idea they know the management they know every bad thing mm. that's happening within that business their their balance sheet um fanatics where they can see all and spot all the 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 risks and perhaps fraud in those um those stocks i don't do that i don't think it's important to do that i like to short stocks that sometimes i like to say avoid the obvious um, if you avoid the obvious type shorts, uh, you oftentimes can benefit more. I look for technical deterioration in a stock or an exhaustion signal uh, to, you know, give me the uh, the catalyst to to add that as a short. You know, it's been a very difficult time trying to short Tesla uh, for a lot of people. You need to know when to pick your spots if you are. Um, doing that if you were looking at it just from the fundamentals um you'd be like everybody else out there that would just be pulling their hair out mm. wirecard is another one um, it took a long long time for this really to be exposed and it hurt a lot of shorts out there um, i believe when they were added to the index uh, the stock went up a lot the shorts were mm. squeezed out so that is a really important yeah. um, factor now I look um, at short interest, um, and I, I think that it's um, it's something we were we were talking about earlier. You know, knowing and looking at the particular short interest on a stock is really really important. Now, I, I don't understand how the guys at Melvin Capital uh, were so short um, GameStop and could you know sleep at night knowing that 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 there was such a large short position in the stock and they were, you know, a huge part of it. That was just an obvious place to not be. And in, that was a fundamental short and GameStop should not be where it is today. Obviously it's a dying business, but I look at stocks with low short interest that have had large moves higher. I look for exhaustion signals and then I see the opportunity when they start to drop. I may not get a you know waterfall drop uh, as a lot of people expect, but if I can grab 10, 20% on the downside on pullbacks, I'm, I'm perfectly happy doing that. 
We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Yeah, well, let's briefly cover the technical analysis of strategy that you're employing uh, at, at telemetry and, and as you have done, I suppose, throughout your career. How specifically then are you identifying that short interest and how do you decide to make a move? Is it by using indicators such as DeMarc? Uh, and perhaps for, for the listeners that haven't heard of DeMarc, can you explain how that works? Well, there's a couple of things that I use. Uh, first of all, I, I do look at DeMarc indicators and DeMarc indicators were created uh, by a man named Tom DeMarc in the 1970s. And Tom DeMarc is a, I mean, I have to say he is a genius in the sense that he has, or he did create these indicators um, without the use of a computer. And the purpose of of what those indicators do, and he he has over 70 indicators that, uh, uh, that he employs or he's developed and they're exhaust, you know, the main ones are exhaustion indicators. So you can spot a trend and his indicators are useful for spotting at the end of a trend. And when, when you have the signals and people have seen my charts, you see that there's, there's green nines and red 13s. And I'm not going to get into all the details because that'll just send everybody, you know, over the edge. But the, the bottom line is mm-hmm. we look for these signals um, and it's actually when you get a 13 on the top, it actually gives us the confidence that it's a lower risk opportunity to short something. And conversely, when we have a 13 on the downside, it's an opportunity to, to buy something. Now, when people don't see these, these indicators on their charts, uh, they think that we're, we're flat out nuts uh, because the trend is your friend and we say the trend is your friend until it ends. But Tom DeMarc um, created these by hand on paper. And I remember him telling some of us that uh, he had the fire department come to his house because he had all these reams of paper stacked up in his garage and it was a fire hazard. But when computers came around, he started to, to code this and he found out that actually this really works. And I, I've used the indicators for 20 years. Uh, I use them on just about every asset. I even track uh, economic indicators, which is, you know, some people may go, how do you do that? But they really do work. And the other thing is when they don't work, uh, you can actually spot that pretty quickly as well. Nothing works 100%. But this gives, in my opinion, a good, um, a good basis for spotting ideas that are um, getting exhausted on the, on the downside or getting exhausted on the upside. Now, currently, we have an interesting setup here in the U.S. Uh, the NASDAQ is uh, comprised of, let's say the NASDAQ 100, it's comprised of 100, 100 stocks. But really, there's only five stocks that have done all the heavy lifting um, for years. And it's uh, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, um, mm. and Amazon. And those five stocks have contributed or attribution uh, mm. over a lot of given periods is over 50% of the index. So the index is really, they're, they're mega cap stocks now. So just a small move with those stocks uh, really can hold up an index. So those, we're seeing a lot of exhaustion signals again. 
And we've had um, the daily sentiment index. Uh, the NASDAQ has been over, the sentiment has been over 80% for the last month. So I, I'm looking at it and I say, okay, market sentiment can stay elevated for a while. You need the signal to turn things. And that's when we use the DeMarc indicators. Now, I will layer in also the uh, Phil Erlanger was the head technician at Fidelity um, Mutual Fund back in the 90s. And he was an advocate for looking at short interest. And he has an interesting way of looking at short interest, which is different from other uh, places of looking. He looks at a short interest ratio that's, that's more skewed towards three months rather than a longer term. So what we have here is we have the NASDAQ with DeMarc um, sell exhaustion signals. Uh, sentiment is very high. And the short interest on all of those big mega cap names is incredibly low. And that means that if there is any sort of pullback or hiccup or dislocation, uh, there could be a vacuum lower based on all those things, and especially without the shorts to come in and cover. People are very, very crowded in these stocks for good reason. They're great companies, but they're overbought. They should come down. Um, they may not come down like a 1987 waterfall. Problem with a lot of people that look at the mark indicators and they say, oh, they don't work. Your expectations are wrong here. If they stall something out for a period of time or you get a minor pullback, let's say 5-10%, that they've done, they've done their job. And you want to be able to exploit that, that type of move. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of buy signals in a long, long time. And it's because the market is so high. And going back to January of mm. 2020, I just saw there was, there was an overwhelming amount of sell signals on all the indices. And I, I track, uh, I put out a note, two notes a day. One, I track the Eurostock 600. And we had tons of sell signals uh, back in January that within that index. And we also had tons of sell signals within the S&P. And when I see that many sell signals piling up together, it gives me more confidence as well. And that's really how I, I try to tell people uh, how to watch um, these signals, even if they don't have the DeMarc indicators. If you see a lot of sell signals happening, you probably want to be cognizant that there's the potential for a reversal. Uh, on those signals. In March of 2020, we had tons of buy signals. And just because I have a process, when I saw all those buy signals, that also with the low market sentiment, it gave me a lot of confidence that we were going to get a reversal. The, the previous time we had a really good buy signal was December of 2018. I was actually traveling. I was in London uh, with the family in December. And we had planned this, this trip with my wife and daughters. And as it turned out, I got the flu and I was sick in our hotel room. Everybody was out. So I was sitting on my laptop, just watching all this stuff happen and the markets are getting killed. And I was putting a note saying, bye, 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 bye. And I had a couple of clients that said, are you, are you, I know you're sick. Are you feeling okay? Are you Usually when you get those types of things too, you know, this is always fun too. Whenever I put out something on Twitter or even when my hedge fund, I'd have somebody say, I'd say, I'm buying this or I'm shorting this. 
someone <laughs> would say good luck facetiously. That was always a great sign that that someone was going to, you know, saying, you know, good luck. You're never going to make money on that. Uh, I, I did that on on Twitter when I said, you know, lumber rates were going to peak, and now they're it's half off of collapsed all the way mm-hmm. back down to where before they broke out. So I always like that. That's a great little sentiment um, thing. I, I shouldn't tell people that um, because I, I still want people to say good luck to me when uh, they think I'm wrong. So those are that's part of the process of what I do. I try to illustrate that. I try to keep DeMarc uh, indicators, try to keep them simple uh, because they can get very complex. And there's times where I have to <laughs> pull my book out and look and see um, you know, yeah. what am I looking at here? And, uh, and that is part of it. It's, it's, a, it's a process. It's putting different types of indicators that are non-correlated together. Mm. And for technical analysis of the way I look at things is I look at previous places in the market, whether it's on the highs or the lows, and what are those indicators telling me at, those, at that particular time? And what should I expect in the future? I mean, the markets don't go up forever. And a good healthy market is one that does have pullbacks and does have volatility and, and does have um, opportunities to, to get in. I don't chase stocks, which has been uh, difficult for me this year. I, I, I took the level one CFA uh, way back when. I didn't continue. I passed it, but I didn't continue because I, I, got, I got launched mm-hmm. into a hedge fund. <laughs> had no time, but I do look at things from a valuation standpoint. I think stocks are overvalued at this point. Um, God knows uh, what's going to happen with uh, the Fed in the, com- the coming months and the other central banks. I think there's going to be a hawkish tone. I think there's going to be pullbacks on some of the asset purchases, mm. and that should cool the markets a bit as well. I think that it's uh, a healthy thing uh, for the markets to have volatility, and it's very unhealthy not have this type of volatility that we're in right now. Yeah. So, I mean, it's clear that you're comfortable sort of approaching trades from a contrarian perspective and looking for those reversals rather than simply trying to trade with the, the consensus direction, I guess. But I'm, I'm also interested to understand over what time horizon are you typically looking at market sentiment? Like, are you analyzing it from a long-term perspective or is it actually quite short to medium term? Well, you know, every fund manager, um, every investor has their own set of parameters and time horizons, risk uh, parameters that they look at. And I've always told people, you know, develop your own that works well for you. I know people that are incredibly good day traders. I know good, you know, uh, position traders that will buy something and will sell it a little higher, buy more on, on dips. Uh, and that's generally what I, I try to do. I try to um, position trade. And my trades can last from two weeks to um, three months uh, at a time. I try to let things run as they work. Um, unfortunately, there are times mm-hmm. um, that I sell too early. I make mistakes like that. Uh, but I do keep my risk parameters uh, fairly tight. I recommend really this is something that i think is paramount is to make sure that your position sizing is proper and having a, a diversified portfolio with position size that are not going to you're not going to lose half your portfolio on one position i look at 1% as 
the minimum for any idea that I put on. I can go up to 5% max uh, on one particular idea. And I'm not like a lot of others where they say, oh, you can you know, buy and, and you can't average down. If I, I, I feel perfectly fine averaging down, uh, maintaining my stop levels um, and, and adding to a position. I also like to add to a position as it's in, increasing in value or, or uh, working for me. And, and uh, so that's uh, typically what I, I do. I'm, I'm, you know, I'd love to have the opportunity to say I'm, I'm long-term, I'm going to sit tight and hold something forever, but I, I just don't do that. And I think it's important also because, you know, there's a lot of people that, that are crypto traders and the, the, the mantra has been to hold forever and you don't want to ever sell Bitcoin. But I, I'm used to having um, the per- performance metrics uh, measured on my performance and I can't uh, bear to have a 50% pullback. And I always like to tell people this, if you bought Amazon in 1998 when they did their IPO, you doubled your money in the first month. And after the first month, it went down 47%. And then, which would have been, you know, rather difficult to, to hold on to if you're a professional money manager, or even if you're just, you know, an investor. But it went up 6,300% after that with you know, a lot of wiggles in there, but it went up rather quickly. Similar to what, what's happened with crypto. Went down 50%, went back up to the old highs. And then within a year, it went down 94%. Now, I can say confidently that if I had something that was up 6,300% and I just gave back 94% of that, I would be in therapy. Uh, I would not have a job if I was a professional money manager. Uh, and if I said, look, in 2021, Amazon's going to be $3,700, um, I think everybody would laugh at me. So thinking things like that, you have to know the, you you have to know your own risk parameters, and I can't I can't live through drawdowns like that. That's just insane. And I I look at it this: I embrace uncertainty, and I'm able to make decisions only based on what I know today. And I can look back and say, well, if I had held on to that, I would have this. That's a hindsight trading is very very uh, detrimental um, to one's psyche. So I manage risk um, the best I can with what I have at my disposal that day, and I try not to look too far out because things change and markets change, and I don't want to be so uh, cemented into a position that potentially could fall under the spell of the market falling or some other potential news. So I'm, I'm very fluid the way I operate and I'm very comfortable moving to cash. I'm very comfortable to short things at the particular times. Um, but I just keep my sizes right. I maintain stops and I will monetize. And, you know, as I like to say, you know, pull the fruit off the trees when it's due and, running a long short fund is difficult because you could have a great day where every one of your longs is going up and all your shorts are going down. So it's almost like a manic depressive type of lifestyle that you have to live. But you have days like yesterday where the markets are down, you, you take some shorts off, uh, markets are up today, you take some longs off and you just move around. And that's generally what um, 
a long short hedge fund manager and trader. That's what they do. Mm. And it's that in investment thinking, I suppose, that's manifested on the hedge fund telemetry website. And I want to get into the detail of the content, but before we do, um, I mean, it, it says on your website the content here, the analysis here is trusted by some of the top traders in the world. So, what do you think sets your analysis, your content apart from? other people in the space and other publishers in the space, because I'm sure you'll agree there's a lot of investment content out there. Right. I, you know, I read a ton of other people's work and I look at myself as different because my process uh, combines a lot of uncorrelated types of analysis. And there's a lot of people out there, and especially that you, you read that, that will just tra- uh, chase trends and, you know, without really doing the analysis um, of the market backdrop. And I, I look at market internals. I look at short interest. I look at exhaustion signals. I combine all these different things uh, to come up with a, a risk parameter. And I feel like what sets me off from others is that I am able to spot uh, market risk and reward at the appropriate time. So I'm currently right now looking at the markets and I'm truly astounded that the markets in the US are at these levels. And I'm, I'm very confident that we're going to get some second half uh, dynamics on the downside, especially with some of these large mega cap stocks uh, leading to the downside. I think it's, uh, I'm not afraid to say exactly what I feel or what I'm seeing. You know, I'm, I'm somewhat biased um, in the sense that um, I look for short ideas a lot, um, partly because I worked at a hedge fund and finding short ideas at work is a very difficult thing. So I have a lot of people that want uh, short ideas that can work uh, in, a, in a market that's trending up. And when the markets are absolutely in the gutter and everything is you know, falling apart in the world, I'm confident enough to make buys, I, you know, to say now's the time to, to be buying things. So I, I don't have um, anyone that influences me. Um, I, don't, I don't necessarily, I can, I can look at also a lot of investment newsletters that are people that worked on the sell side um, at brokerage firms that, that recommend things way too late. And I can also... I, I see that. And it's, it's usually people that are recommending things with the fruit already bloomed on the, on the trees. The apples are already ready to be picked and they're saying to buy it. I'd rather buy mm-hmm. something at, you know, when the tree's just coming out of the ground and people are, are looking at it and saying, no, this is never going to work. I looked at, here's a good example. Last September, October, uh, in the U.S., when it was pretty clear that uh, Joe Biden was going to become the president, the policy for energy was going to change. And the average person would say, well, he's going to stop drilling. He's going to be a real difficult guy for the energy sector. It's gonna, he's going to make put more regulation. He's going to do all of these things that are, it's going to be very tough on the energy companies. Perfect. That's exactly what we wanted to see because we had too much oil being drilled uh, with Trump. And everybody, uh, when Trump came in, 
they said Exxon and all the big oil companies are in his back pocket. And he said, drill, drill, drill. And oil prices went down. Oil stocks were killed. So it's been the absolute opposite reaction with Biden. And oil stocks have been absolutely uh, a great place uh, to participate on the long side. And I'm, I'm really happy that we were able to take advantage of that. We recently sold our energy positions, um, partly because of, of exhaustion signals on the upside and seasonality that we look at uh, tends to get a little weaker towards the, the third quarter of the year. We'll come back to them again, but uh, I, I think that that's the contrary opinion that I will build a thesis. And it worked out with all the different things too. The, the short interest was high. Um, to mark buy sell buy signals on the downside, and this is really a good, easy, low risk opportunity that we um, exploited on the upside. Yeah, and it's these trade ideas, I suppose, that form the basis of your content. You've got a daily note, uh, a week ahead note, a pre market note, which I think is called first call. Um, mm-hmm. So, where where can people subscribe to this? How can they get access to it, and and how much is it going to cost them? Okay, our website is. Pardon the uh, interruption, but we are in the process of relaunching our website. But you can see us at hedgefundtelemetry.com. And currently, we have one sector note. Um, We have a great energy analyst that uh, is sort of beta testing our uh, new format with uh, fundamental analysts that are going to be contributing. But my stuff that I put out um, is $750 per year for the retail client. There's monthly and quarterly um, payment plans as well. Uh, for small institutions, it uh, goes up uh, to 3000 And then we have large institutions, and that's a conversation that we have. We do soft dollar arrangements, but most of the time, we, we have a lot of people that will just pay on with the credit card. Uh, for your viewers, uh, we, are, we will give a $250 discount for a yearly rate uh, if you use stonks. The coupon code. So it's a little off the meme thing, stonks, not stocks, stonks. If you have any problems, uh, you can email us, but uh, we'd love to have everybody uh, come. We're going to be adding a lot of new features uh, with the updated website. And I'm thrilled about that. It's just been an evolution. Um, it's taken uh, a few years and a lot of thought and a lot of really great suggestions from some of my larger Clients uh, have said, you know, do this, do that, and uh, don't do that. But we put out a, a, a note early in the morning uh, in the U.S. Uh, pre-market that gives a lot of different data what, what's happened over overnight uh, in the U.S. Uh, looking at a lot of pricing action, pre-market action on the U.S. market, which is very active. Uh, we do have some, probably about seven charts. We run the Demarc screens on the S. Uh, the Eurostox uh, 600. So we have a lot of stuff on there. And then our daily note, uh, I put it out uh, midday. I try to get it out by one o'clock. And I like to see uh, what's happened within the day. Uh, There's a lot of notes that come out where they wrote it the day before. And by the time it, it hits your inbox in the morning, everything's changed a bit. So I like to have some idea of what's happening, how they've digested the morning. And so people can adjust things uh, going into the end of the day, which I think is the most important time. On that note, I, I can go a little crazy. And sometimes I have 50 charts on there, stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, 
uh, you name it. I, I, I'm seeing it. I like to put it on there. And again, I, I don't have anybody that tells me um, what to do. So sometimes I'll, I'll put some irrelevant thoughts in there. Um, I try to keep things a little light, uh, maybe thought-provoking, maybe give someone a chuckle here and there. But I think it's uh, important. And I have uh, a bunch of uh, clients in in UK, and I have one in particular who works. He's a macro hedge fund uh, analyst, and he is super well known. And he tells me that that it's his favorite uh, note of the day that he gets late when he's you know after he puts his kids down and he's reading it and he says, it's always some, you know, something in there that's thought provoking. That is something that I'm not getting from other places. And he's that type of guy that, that would spot things early and be able to build a huge position. And he also consults with a lot of other uh, large hedge funds. And so getting that type of endorsement from someone in the UK who's been around the block, who's seen it all, uh, is, is great. So I'm, you know, it's, it's, it, and I get great perspectives from so many other people too. Yeah, great. Okay, well, we'll put a link in the episode description so our, our listeners can find uh, all that information easily. Um, and just before we get onto the quick fire questions in the end of the interview, I just want to talk to you about a couple of interesting trends that I, I think we're seeing in the, in the market at the moment. Um, we touched on sort of inflation data uh, earlier, uh, and with the U.S. consumer price index having jumped by 5.4% in June year over year, many are concerned that the world's largest economy is overheating. So, firstly, what what does your sentiment analysis tell you about the inflation outlook in the U.S.? Well, there is inflation, obviously. Uh, the the debate is if it's transitory or if it's structural, and I think you have a little bit of both. Uh, look, mm-hmm. I dug deep and I looked at uh, the components that. Uh, made up the high inflation number. Used car sales were, were going through the roof, um, partly because of the semiconductor shortage, uh, rental cars because of the reopening. Um, you have travel, it's very, very high. Um, insurance, car insurance uh, has been very, very high. And uh, restaurants uh, are reopening here in the US and They've been they've been open for for several months, but there, there's a huge surge and desire to go out again. So that's been a big component. Now, if you add oil into that, that all of those, it's about sixty six percent of the CPI data. I think that you're going to see wages stay higher. They've seen no wage growth for ten years, and now finally, uh, we're seeing wage growth because people would rather sit home, and the government is paying some huge, huge uh, unemployment benefits. So people would rather sit home, collect their money uh, from the government rather than work. So there's a competition between the employers who can't seem to get uh, people to work uh, in these jobs and and the government. So you have this uh, difficulty with that. And you're probably going to have the unemployment benefits in the U.S. subside in the next couple of months, probably September, October. And then you're going to see uh, the jobs numbers, the, un- the unemployment rate go down and, and the jobs, you know, sometimes they say they're created, but I think these are just people going back to work. That's going to be real high. So I'm a bit, I see transitory in there. Um, that's what the Fed is thinking. That's what the majority of people in the market are thinking. 
That's why bond, the bond market didn't, you didn't see rates spike on that CPI number uh, because they think it's transitory. They're seeing the data as well of what, you know, clearly things that aren't going to last forever. But you're going to have some things continue higher. Uh, food prices, um, they're going to keep food prices higher as long. Shrinkflation, uh, where you see smaller candy bars at the same price or other items that uh, you, would, you would purchase uh, with smaller amounts, uh, same price. Uh, it's trying to fool the customer, but that's been happening as well. So that's a risk. Uh, one other thing that's going to happen, and I think we might see it this coming week when we start to see more earnings, you're going to see a margin risk. I think that these higher prices are going to start to hit companies and they're going to start talking about their margins are going down because of the higher input costs, wages, uh, materials, things like that. That could also hurt um, the market or start to give some people some, some concern. So that's my thought on the inflation data. Yeah, great. And I guess uh, with that data, investors might think it might be time to shun perhaps growth stocks and some of those marquee tech names that we spoke earlier, but we are seeing them record record highs. So I'm, I know we touched on it earlier, but I'm keen to sort of see how you see that marquee name, that big tech space performing uh, in the medium term looking forward. Do you think there is a rotation back into tech underway? Well, you know, the, the funny thing is we, we had this big surge in the reopening stocks with airlines and cruise lines and restaurants, retail stocks mm. um, really surged in the first quarter. And then they've, they've moderated, uh, even with the recovery happening. And then people went back to the old, you know, easy, reliable, large cap growth names, uh, and especially with uh, rates dropping. The 30-year yeah. yield is uh, just under 2% now. And with low rates, uh, the narrative is by large cap growth tech names, they benefit with low rates. If rates start to lift, which I think they will in the coming quarters, uh, I think you're going to see pressure on those tech stocks. And they're not cheap. They're great companies, but the, the average of those big mega cap nice. tech stocks is over 30 times earnings. And that's for them, that's expensive. Um, Historically, they're, they're closer to 20%. So if people have bid up these stocks, uh, they've done great. They, they basically can report any number they want because they can pull a lot of levers. They're so big and you know, say, this is what we're going to, this, this is what we earned. The other thing is they haven't given uh, guidance for, for a year. They haven't given out guidance of what they, what they should expect. Apple is notable about that. They, they if, oh, we're not sure what guidance yeah. is going to be, so we're going to withhold guidance. So the analysts are sort of scrambling to what, you know, what are they going to report? And quite frankly, they can report whatever they want and they continue to do very, very well. I mean, Apple is an extraordinary company that has um, the stickiest product I've ever seen with the iPhone. You can't live without it, obviously, with a lot of others. You can't go, it's hard to move and migrate to another platform. It's mm. rare that people are selling their iPhones and, and getting an Android phone. You, know, you have a lot of, you know, the, the tug is the Android versus the iPhone and people are dug in on that, but they're sticky. They're not moving. So my, my thought is that these should moderate 
Um, I think you're going to see higher input costs. I think you could have semiconductor pressure um, on some of the, the tech names. Um, and, and that, I, I think, is the, the next leg in the market. Yeah, absolutely. So a story to watch over the next sort of few weeks and months, I think. And that semiconductor point is, I think, a really interesting one and a theme that should be watched by by investors. Um, well, let's finish then on our quick fire question round. So this is a, a more generic list of questions we ask all guests. So just a lighthearted way to end the episode. Feel free to answer in as little as one sentence or even one word, if you like. Let's go. First question then, what is the top mistake investors make, in your opinion? There are several. I have to point them all out. Leverage, position sizing, and risk management, not using stops. Those three right there. Mm -hmm. Where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read specific publishers, for example? Again, I take so many inputs from my Bloomberg, from sell-side research. Um, I look and read all day everything I possibly can. I'm a news junkie. Uh, I look at contrarian opinions of mine. Uh, I look at the the most bearish websites. And I look at the most bullish websites. I study both and come up with my own. But I, I love reading um, the Wall Street Journal. It's one of my favorites. Um, mm. I don't have enough time during the day to read it. Sure. Okay. Question three then. What's the most memorable moment from your career to date? Uh, unfortunately, it's that bad time when um, the FBI um, raided our office. That uh, really uh, set me back. And, uh, you know, your reputation is ruined in a matter of minutes. And um, just happy to be able to have reinvented myself and uh, moved on from it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's going to live long in, in most people's memories, I think. So our penultimate question a top tip for your younger self. So if you could go back in time and give yourself one tip, what do you think it would be? I think this is actually something I've talked about with, um, with a lot of people. If I could go back to my 25-year-old self, I would say, look at your life in five-year blocks. And so you're 25. What do you think you're going to be doing at 30? And what are you, your expectations of your financial situation? What are your goals that you want to have at that particular time? And then I would look at 35 and say, where do you want to be in your life at 35? What are your goals, financial situation, your, your career situation? Most likely you're going to be married. Uh, you might have kids or you might have one on the way. You most likely will have a significant partner. And then at 40, what do you want and where do you want to be? And that, and just 40 is an important year because you either are going to be, you know, ingrained in a company uh, or ingrained in your, in your career. And then the problem that I, I, you go 45 and then 50 at 50 on wall street and other financial firms, uh, there's a real uh, attrition where you start to see uh, the newer generations come up and the older generations uh, start to retire or are retired. And in this business where the deflation because of uh, automation and algorithms, uh, you've seen fewer traders, you've seen fewer funds, um, you see fewer, you know, less need for some of these uh, positions, everything changes. So how do you want to be positioned at 50 and, and financially in your, your personal life? And then that next uh, leg of, of your life uh, is important to think about. But I would look at 
five-year increments and think that way rather than short-term. Yeah, absolutely. I like that. And not one that we've had before as well. So great. Okay, final question. This is sort of the opto question. We aim to speak to people and companies helping or actually achieving outperformance over benchmark returns. So what do you think an investor's best source of alpha is if you had to narrow it down to one thing? I think risk management. I think being able to, um, you know, there's there's a lot of people that say just stay in the market forever and ever and ever. And, you know, that that's difficult to do. Uh, we've seen people, um, you know, generally people sell lower and they sell when they panic and they get, they get, Concerned, I wouldn't try and necessarily beat the that as my goal to beat the indices. I would generally try and stay true to myself and manage risk the best I can. And over the long term, you might just beat the indices. Uh, sometimes it's important to spot what is working within the indices and to latch onto that and look at the sectors that are leading. Um, yes, you've had the big mega cap tech working, but energy really was an outperformer over the last nine months. So I, I'm really more focused on being positioned in the right places and being able to risk manage when you see higher risk and stay out of things. And be patient. You can just be patient, wait for your, your spot, and uh, you don't have to swing at every pitch as a baseball analogy, which all the UK people are saying, wait, what? But, and I'm sorry about, I'm sorry about the <laughs> recent uh, football. All the fans, uh, I was broken hearted. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> that was so hard. It's been a tough week. I'm not. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going <laughs> to pretend that we weren't all uh, pretty quiet for for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday at least. Um, yeah, the the office was pretty desolate when I went in uh, on Monday. I'm not going to lie. But um, thank you for mentioning that. And uh, maybe that's the perfect place to end. And <laughs> um, say so thank you very much, Tom, for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. It's been great. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, and thanks to all your, your viewers. And um, let's talk soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. CoFruition.